You may be seated. You, uh, you recognize that Pastor Rob is not here today, and if you read his email yesterday, you will realize it's been our, can I call it a tradition, maybe three years now, uh, on the Lord's Day after General Assembly, um, Pastor Rob and our dear brother, uh, Pastor Matthew Kerr, uh, from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Concord, Mass., uh, have done a pulpit swap. So I would like to uh, welcome Matthew here this morning to bring us God's Word. Well, it, uh, it is becoming a tradition. I hope it doesn't feel like a habit, uh, but here I am. Uh, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. Today we're going to be reading and studying together Romans chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 16. We're going to read through verse 25. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 25. And let me say, while uh, you're turning there, that in many homes, uh, hospitality follows the rule of three. So, uh, the first two times you visit, you are counted as a guest, and the third time, you're treated like family. Uh, This is, indeed, good count, Mike. This is the third time that I'm now with you for our Uh, what is becoming annual post-General Assembly pulpit swap. Uh, And every time we visit, we feel a little bit more like family. I get to recognize some more of your faces, though I do not remember your names, most of you. I apologize. Uh, And I'm so glad to be with you and, uh, and for this to feel like a second home for us, in a sense. And because you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're family, I also feel free to tell you things, to share with you things that Uh, Perhaps my seminary preaching professors would have told me not to tell you. Um, Specifically, I can tell you that what you are about to hear is a sermon that has been preached before. Uh, That's not a big surprise if you know how this arrangement works. Uh, But to put this in terms of hospitality for you, this morning I'm going to be serving you leftovers. Um, I wouldn't feel the need to tell you that, I I don't think, uh, except for the fact uh, that today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1 through a very particular lens. We're coming to this text with something of an agenda. Uh, In the church where I serve, the elders have asked me to spend the summertime uh, preaching a series of uh, sermons on the issues of marriage and sexuality as we find them in the Bible. So, Redeemer, we're studying things like sexual sin. We're talking about singleness. We're talking about divorce. We are, of course, unpacking all of the complexities and the wonder of the gift of marriage that God has given to reveal to us uh, some of of the beauty of the gospel. Uh, And I realize this is not the study that you folks are doing here at West Springfield, but I was thinking about which passage I should share with you today And I considered the fact that whether or not you're studying them, these are also the issues that are confronting you. You live in the same world that I live in. We hear the same whisperings every day from our culture. We hear the same shouts from the skeptics. We hear the same siren call from our own desires. And all of those voices are pressing us to try and make sex and sexuality uh, the prime uh, determiner Uh, of our humanity. So I thought that it'd be okay today to talk with you about what might be a bit uncomfortable, about what uh, might be maybe a sensitive subject, because when you're with family, you can talk about things like that. Uh, 
Uh, So we're going to read Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 16 to 25. And before we read this text, let's go to the Lord together and pray for his blessing on our study. O gracious God and Father, we thank you that you indeed are the Lord of creation. We thank you that you have made and fashioned us according to uh, your good pleasure and for your purposes. We thank you, Lord, that we are yours, the people of your hand and the sheep of your pasture. We pray that as we come to this, your word, uh, you would take it by your Holy Spirit and sink it deep into our hearts where it may do good by the working of your spirit to grow fruit in our lives. We pray that we would... Uh, have uh, the will and the desire by your renewing power to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest that we may grow up uh, into eternal life in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Now God's word as we find it in Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, if you want to build a house, you have to start with the foundation. Before you hang the curtains, paint the bedroom, you have to dig the footer, you have to pour the concrete that will give stability to the place that you hope to live. And this is, of course, common sense, but it's also biblical wisdom. So Jesus told us, Uh, Clearly, that those who build upon the sand will be devastated when the storms come and wash away all that we have been building, all we have been laboring for, everything we have hoped in. Far better, says the Savior, to build upon the rock. Far better to have the right foundation. Of course, Jesus was was not making a statement, you know, about building codes. He was telling us about our faith. He was uh, telling us uh, about what it means to believe in the Lord and, and how to live out that faith that we have. He was telling us about where we start and also what we ought to be reaching for. And according to Jesus, the only faith worth living is one that is built on something solid. Now, when it comes to questions of sex and marriage, you know the landscape. 
You know that we live in a world that would love nothing more than to see the biblical foundations shattered into a million pieces. You know that we live in a culture that is actively trying to build a new concept of sexuality on top of ever-shifting sands of self-definition. And I'm tempted to say that that is a new thing that's happening. But it's not. I'm tempted to quote to you the statistics that reveal the meteoric rise of sexual perversion from something in our culture uh, in a place of revulsion to something in the place of acceptance, now to something in the place of pride in our culture. I'm tempted to tell you that this is new, but it's not. And if you know anything of the world into which Paul was writing, if you know anything about the pagan culture in first century Rome, you know that this is a story that has been told before. What we are seeing is not a distinctly postmodern problem. It's not a distinctly American problem. It is not a distinctly uh, a problem of the sexual revolution of 60 years ago. This is the human situation. It's a story as old as sin itself. And that means that if we are going to find anything in the Scriptures to say helpful or, uh, or, or, or distinctly Christian about any of it, what we need to do is to begin at the beginning with the right foundation. In order to do that, we need to turn to the doctrine of creation. We need to turn to the truth that Romans chapter 1 calls the truth about God that man in unrighteousness is so very prone to suppress. The truth that we are created and that the Creator alone is worthy of our worship. Two points to examine our text today. And the first point deals with the God of creation. The God of creation. Now, you are most likely aware that Romans chapter 1 is one of the very first texts that conservative-minded Christians turn to uh, when we deal with issues of sexual sin. Specifically, it contains one of the clearest enunciations anywhere in Scripture of the sin of homosexuality. We stopped uh, today in our reading just before that notorious language in verse 26. It talks about dishonorable passions. It talks about unnatural relations. Now, you add to that the language of God's wrath in verse 18. You also add to that the fact that some people misuse this text as a sort of dividing line in a culture war, a sort of barbed wire fence protecting those good people inside the church from those bad people outside the church. You add all of that together, and it's no wonder that many people think that Romans chapter 1 looks specifically like a hammer designed to hit only one nail. So lest we get distracted with issues that ought to come downstream, we need to see that Paul is laying a foundation for a much larger discussion here. He's not speaking only about sexuality. He's talking about salvation. That's the setup in verses 16 and 17. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The Jew first, also to the Gentile. For everyone who has faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says the gospel of God is the deliverance we need. And we read that and we say, yay and amen. But then we ask deliverance from what? Is the gospel merely deliverance from homosexuality? No, not primarily at least. That's not where we're starting. Paul is digging deeper than that. Well, what could be deeper than that? 
Maybe it's deliverance from our lusts. Maybe the gospel is deliverance from our passions. Maybe the gospel is God's power to save us from what Paul calls our darkened hearts and our foolish minds and and all of our persistent tendency to give God's creatures more honor than they are due. And to all of those things, we have to say no. Not quite. Not primarily. We say yes in the sense that all of those issues, all of those things are symptoms of what's gone wrong with us, but we have to say no in the sense that none of them by themselves is the disease from which we need to be healed. None of them by themselves is the cancer we need to have eradicated by the gospel. The disease for which the gospel is the only cure is the cancer of denying the God who created us in the first place. Verse 18 in Romans chapter 1 is something of a thesis statement. It's setting up the larger argument that's going to come in the next three chapters of Paul's letter. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul's setting up categories here. There is righteousness and there is unrighteousness. There is a God and there is godlessness. And we can unpack all that we would see if we were to read the next three chapters, but you should know that the culmination of this first little mini-section of the letter comes near uh, to the middle of chapter 3. Flip there with me and read Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is our foundation. This is the truth that man loves to suppress. The truth that God is God and we are not. The truth that because He is our Creator, we are accountable to him. Now, I imagine this is a concept that, that every person in this room ought to be able to grasp immediately. We have a long-standing rule in our household, and the rule says uh, that you are not allowed to take Lego pieces off of a build that someone else has made. Why? Because you didn't create it. And so it doesn't belong to you. And so that thing that you've got there that you want to take that special little clip that you need for your build, no, that's not yours at this moment. Somebody else has built it. When you make something, it becomes an extension of your creative energy. It's your design for what it should look like, how it should function. Creation entails ownership. When you create something, you are the Lord of all that you have made. Now, that's simple enough when we're talking about Legos, but the concept doesn't really change uh, significantly if we zoom all the way out to deal with nations and mountains and, uh, and species and galaxies. Because God is the creator of all things, He is the Lord of all things. He has ownership. He has oversight over His product. And maybe you don't like being thought of as a product, but that's what we are. We're His And he made us, and we are accountable to him. We could also approach it more positively, in a sense. We could say that because he's the one who has made us, he is the one who is able, who is capable, uh, who has the position to tell us what is good. 
for our lives. To describe for us how our marriages and how our sexuality works best. What can be really fulfilling for us and how to use our lives in the best possible way. But no matter how we look at it, it still comes back to creation. So it's not some incidental detail. Or a little religious myth when we open the very first chapter and the very first page of your Bibles. And we find that in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Act 1, scene 1 in the biblical drama, and God's Word establishes the fundamental distinction that gives meaning to all of existence as we know it. We are not here by chance, Scripture tells us. We have not come into being by our own volition. We are not the result of unguided biochemical reactions churning along aimlessly until the cosmic machine runs out of energy. We are not merely organisms. We are creatures. And our God is our creator, the Lord of it all. And because God is creator, we are accountable to him. From this starting point flows every other truth and every other command about who we are and how we should live in the world that God has made. If we ask, what is marriage supposed to do for me? What is it supposed to look like? What is sexuality intended to do, and, and how should I use it? What is love? How do I express that? If we ask any of those questions, the Bible replies, in the beginning, God created. Herman Bovink says that creation is the fundamental doctrine. Creation, he says, is the foundation stone upon which the old and new covenants rest. Christopher Watkin puts it a little differently. He says creation is the single block in the bottom row of the Bible's Jenga tower. And if you pull out that single block, the entire structure comes tumbling down. Let's switch the metaphor here for a minute. Let's move from talking about Legos to talking about Play-Doh. Not not with a T, not the philosopher. Play-Doh. Play-Doh, not Play-Toe. It's quite a confusion when I preached this the first time in my church. And uh, for a while, people just, they were not with it. Play-Doh. Now, you know, whether you're a child or an adult... Uh, you know the way that it is impossible to take a lump of Play-Doh and squish it into anything without leaving your fingerprints all through the stuff. Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 1 that that is exactly what God has done with creation. He tells us there's truth that can be known about God. There's a truth we are all convinced of, even those who try to suppress it, the truth uh, that there is a creator worthy of worship. We all know that there's a God who is Lord of what he's made. And how do we know that? We know it because he's left his fingerprints behind. Verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Paul doesn't go into detail as to how we see these things. How we know through what God has made. So maybe it brings to mind that psalm that we sang together today. Psalm 19. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Maybe that's one way that we think of, that we see the invisible God through what he has made. When we look at these things in creation that make us feel small and insignificant by comparison. Or maybe we look a little more closer to ourselves. Maybe maybe we think about the fact that man is an undeniably moral creature. Maybe we think about the fact that even when our moral arguments disagree, we all still have moral arguments, don't we? We all live in the world with a, with a certain sense of oughtness, right? We look around ourselves with this undeniable inward compulsion to believe that the world ought to work in a certain way. We believe that justice ought to triumph. Over evil. We believe that right and wrong exist in categories beyond our collective social consciences. One of the elders at our church at Redeemer puts it this way He says, We are all moral relativists until someone steps on our toe. Because then we know what right and wrong is. And that too is the fingerprint of God. It's what some people call a conscience. It's what Romans chapter 2 verse 15, excuse me, 2.15 will call the works of the law written on the heart. So we look at the things God has made. We look at our uh, moral uh, makeup, or perhaps we consider the way that man cannot help but worship something. Bob Dylan was right, you know. You got to serve somebody. And you can't get away from it. Try as we may, we, we can't get away from being worshipers. And so even a dyed-in-the-wool, die-hard skeptic like Carl Sagan couldn't help but encourage his readers with a thought of something significant. And here's how he put it. He said, the cosmos is within us. He said, we are made of star stuff. We are a way for the universe to know itself. And if you're feeling punchy, you might want to say, who cares, Carl? If it's all just this gigantic cosmic accident, what's the big screaming difference between the hydrogen in the stars and the hydrogen in our hamburgers? If we're all just grown-up fish with big brains and long legs, who cares what we know and why we know it? But you understand what's happening. Humanity cannot stop itself from reaching for significance outside of us. We cannot help but find someone or something to give our lives to. We cannot help but frame our existence under something that is bigger than we are. We are all worshipers by nature, and we can't stop it. We all instinctively live as though space and matter and physical sensation are not all there is. Why? Because God has left His fingerprints on everything. Because God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so it means that everything that is ought to lead us back to the God who made it. It means that all of our universe and all of our desires, it means that all of our relationships and all of our families and all of our marriage and all of our sexuality and all the deepest pleasures that people love to pursue, all of it ought to lead us back to the God of creation. On the other hand, mankind in sin is always honing our ability to avoid the obvious, at least when it suits us. 
This brings us to our second point. The second point today is the idol of autonomy. The idol of autonomy. Now in Paul's thesis statement, verse 18, he says that men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's an idea with two parts. There's truth and then there's suppression. Verses 19 and 20, as we just saw, he expands his statement by telling us what that truth is. There is a God who has created everything. He's the one who's worthy of worship. But then in verses 21 and 23, he comes back to explain how mankind manages to silence that truth even when it's everywhere around us and everywhere within us. The language that he uses is suppression. That is... uh, that is perfectly chosen, I think, because you only suppress something that you know is there, but you wish it wasn't. Suppression is managing the bad PR before it becomes a hashtag. Right? Suppression is deleting that picture of yourself with a bad haircut before anybody else can see it. Suppression is that lie of self-justification that you use to smother the voice of Scripture in the split second before you go ahead and commit that sin that you know full well you should not commit. Suppression is silencing what you know is there, but you wish it wasn't, and it doesn't happen by accident. It has to be maintained. It has to be engaged in. If we were going to give a name to the suppression of this particular truth, we would probably call it idolatry. Here's what Paul says, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. There it is. They suppressed the truth of God. They exchanged the truth of God. They elevated something that was not God to occupy the place that only God ought to have. And that sin we call idolatry. Now, on closer inspection, we also find that idolatry is a sin that always comes in two stages. First of all, idolatry is always a turning away from the God who has made us. Second, idolatry is turning toward those things that God has made. Look again in verse 21. He said they are without excuse. Why? Because although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. That's the first stage of suppression and idolatry. It is a thankless turning away from God. It is refusing to give the Creator the honor and glory that He is due. The second stage comes in verse 23. It sounds like the idolatry we've already seen. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There's the language of exchange again. Because remember, man is by nature a worshiping creature. It's who we are. It's what we do. We can't get away from it. Because that means that merely rejecting the God who made us doesn't mean that we cease to be who we are. We don't stop being worshipers by simply not worshiping God. Instead... We take the glory and the honor that ought to be His and we give it to something that He has made. Functionally speaking, what this means is we worship ourselves instead of the God who created us. We always have to choose between giving glory and honor to Him or bowing down to the power of our own personal choice. Now what this means is that if we define idolatry 
by focusing on our idols, then we're really only addressing half of the issue. This is probably the way that you explained it to your children so that, so that they could grasp the idea of idolatry. Maybe you told them idolatry is not just uh, people in different cultures with their little wooden or gold statues that they bow down to, that they uh, give offerings to. Idolatry is anything that captures your heart more than God, we would tell them. Idolatry is anything that you love and live for more than you love and live for the God who made you. And you can make an idol out of anything. So you can make an idol out of food if you want to. You can make an idol out of pleasure. You can make an idol out of Pokemon cards and video games. Some people make an idol out of achievement. Some people make an idol out of education. Some people make an idol out of family. Some people make an idol out of sexual pleasure or friendship or education or political power. The list is quite literally endless. And here is where the self-conscious Presbyterian quotes that line from Calvin, something about our hearts being a continual factory of idols. And it's true. The problem is that none of those things that we see on the surface actually reveals the idol that's in our hearts. They're merely manifestations of a much deeper deception. Think for a minute about the idol that lies behind gluttony. The gluttonous person does not make an idol out of food, not really. The gluttonous person makes an idol out of comfort. You know how it works. I surely do. Right? We, we feel bad, so we stress eat. We stress eat because we believe that we have a right not to feel bad. And we know it's not very good for us. We know that we're just going to feel worse later on, but in that moment, we don't care. We have believed the lie of the Corinthians. Food for the stomach. Stomach for the food. It's what they're there for, right? You've got appetites. Why not indulge them? And so we make our own personal choice our God. It's the idol of autonomy. It is, by the way, the same idolatry that comes up in sexual sin. What is the idol of the sexual revolution? It's not sex. It's not pleasure. It's not empowerment. It's not any of the things that we see or are told about these things. The idol of the sexual revolution is cosmic autonomy. It is making our choices the arbiter of what is good and right rather than what our Creator has said about the way that He's made it us. You've heard it at the protest, haven't you? You've seen it on the signs. The creed of the new paganism, which, by the way, is very similar to the old paganism, and the creed is the same, my body, my choice. It is the only dogma that unbelieving men and women trapped in sin actually believe. I am my own maker. And so it's the same idolatry that creeps into our marriages. It tells us, you know, this other person, their job is to make me happy. And if they don't, I have a right to get out. Because after all, my marriage, my choice. It's the same idolatry that's lying to our children about what it means to exist in a body that God has made, either male or female, and then lying about the steps that you can take if you feel uncomfortable there. 
but we can keep tracing it back. It's the same false worship that we can go uh, and see all the way back in the garden. What was the first idolatry that our parents engaged in? It wasn't the idolatry of wisdom, despite the fact that the tree was able to make them wise. It wasn't the idolatry of pleasure, despite the fact that the, uh, the food looked good and tasted good and was good to eat. The first idolatry was an idolatry of autonomy. It was the thrill of having no one to answer to beyond our own desires, and so it has ever been. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It is the story of sin in a single sentence. God made man. And man worshipped himself. Now what it all means is that if we hope to find any answers in Scripture when it comes to our sexuality, then we have to do more than just read all the lists of things that God calls sin. We have to do more than just point out all the bad stuff and wag our finger at one another and say, don't do that. Right? When you talk about marriage roles, it's not going to be sufficient, not a sufficient Christian response just to say, now you husbands, you need to learn to love your wives more than you love yourselves. When you speak to your friends who are are single and don't want to be, it will not be a sufficient Christian response to say, well, you probably just haven't found the right person. Eventually, somebody will come along and they'll make you happy and you'll want to be with them. That's not a sufficient Christian response to these issues. Why not? Because our hang-ups and our temptations run deeper than those surface things. They go all the way back to our idolatrous hearts. They go all the way back to the doctrine of creation. They go all the way back to the garden where we suppress the lie, where we suppress the truth, rather, and believe the lie that promises You shall be as gods. Here's the foundational question we need to have answered before we can ask any of our other difficult questions about what sex and marriage are supposed to be like. The question is this. Is God the Lord of your life? Is He the God of your marriage? Is He the God of your desires? Is He the God of your body? Is He the God of what you want and all of your satisfaction? And is He sovereign over your sexuality? Let's be honest. Wives, you will not always want to, quote, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, end quote. Especially when it seems like your husband's making a stupid decision. But the question of your marriage is not, are you smarter than your husband? The question of your marriage is not, do you think this is a good decision? The question of your marriage is not, do you feel validated and affirmed in the marriage role that has been arbitrarily yet culturally assigned to you? The question of your marriage is, is God really the God of your marriage? Does the Lord get to define what is good or do you? Husbands, you will not always want to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Sometimes that's much harder than what you will want to do. 
actually a lot of the time you would much rather just get loud. You would much rather just get angry. You would much rather sulk. You would much rather get passive aggressive. You would much rather disengage than to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. You would much rather, very very often, if we're honest with ourselves, you would much rather make those decisions that are best for you because, after all, you're the man of the house, aren't you? But the question of your marriage is not, are you the man of your house? The question of your marriage is God, the God of your marriage. We can multiply examples. Young people, you will not always want to flee sexual immorality. Most often, you will want to run straight for it. You will not always want to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We could multiply examples. We could keep on counting all the ways that the desires of the flesh push against the call of the Spirit. Doesn't matter if you're young or old or married or single or frustrated or satisfied or somewhere in between. In all of our relationships and our sexuality, the question we need to ask is Is the God of creation really the Lord of your life? If He is, and I know many of you here, and I know that it's true for you, if He is, then you have a foundation from which you can begin to believe that his design for your future is better than your own. Because if he's the Lord of your life, then he's also the God of your salvation. He's also the Lord who has already delivered you in Christ Jesus from the sin of worshiping yourself. If God is the God of your salvation, then he has already given you hope in something that you have not yet seen. How much more can you not see his invisible fingerprints woven into everything he has made and how he has made you? If he's the Lord of your salvation, then you have the perfect foundation. Together by the grace of the Spirit and the wisdom of his word, you have the perfect foundation to walk in faithfulness with him. But if he is not your God, then your problems are much deeper than your sexuality. If he is not your God, your problem is the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And if that's where you are, you need more than marriage counseling. If that's where you are, you need more than an accountability partner and an internet filter. If that is where you are, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of salvation for those who believe. I told you a minute ago that idolatry is a two-step process. First we turn away from God, then we turn toward those things we choose for ourselves. The New Testament tells us that the cure for that sin of idolatry is also a two-step process. So Mark chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and telling us the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. How do we connect all these things? How do we connect the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God, with our relationships and, and our sexuality? 
How do we connect our faith with all, all the ins and the outs and the daily pressures of living uh, in the life and the world that we're facing? We connect them by knowing that if the Lord has given us His Son, then we can trust Him for everything else as well, can't we? If we know that He spares no good thing for us, then when He gives us another command about our relationships, about our bodies, about our desires, if we know that He has held back nothing, not even His Son, when He gives us a command, we will not look at it with a sideways glance and wonder, uh, I don't know if that's really the right way. I don't know if this is really going to turn out for me in the end. I don't know if that's enough to satisfy me. Maybe I need something else as well. Well, this is where we have to begin. We want to ask or have answered any of our problems or questions about sexuality. We have to begin by setting the foundation of Christ as the Lord of our lives. I hope that you're believing in him today. And if you are not, the answer is a two-step process. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we have heard it, you would have been working already by your Holy Spirit in the lives of your people. To give us answers and consolation for the things that we face. We also pray that you would be working in those who may not yet know you. May not yet call you their Lord and God, their Savior. We pray, Father, that you would take this word and sink it deep into our ears and hearts and minds so that we may know you, so that we may trust you and walk with you in all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.